Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 21, recorded on June 11th, 2022. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice, so please, please, please do your own homework. So we'll start out this week with the market update. The stock market closed the week on a sour note after the U.S. inflation accelerated to a fresh 40-year high and consumer sentiment plunged to a record low. Friday's sell-off was broad with all 30 Dow stocks closing lower and decliners outnumbering advancers on the New York Stock Exchange by 8 to 1. The hot inflation numbers, which showed inflation soaring 8.6% on an annualized rate, sparked heightened concerns about a recession and more aggressive interest rate policy from the Federal Reserve starting at next week's meeting. The two-year Treasury yield, considered highly sensitive to Fed rate hikes, spiked 22 basis points to 3.04%, its highest level since 2008. For the week, it was the worst showing for stocks since January with the Dow diving 4.6%, the S&P shedding 5%, and the tech-heavy NASDAQ composite plunging 5.6%. So I'll be talking a little bit later about how inflation is theft, and uh, I will uh, take a look at the CPI numbers from last week, what's really going on uh, from an Austrian economics standpoint, and what to do about it, and uh, also my take on uh, markets. Moving on to Bitcoin news this week. Uh, the first one here is uh, from Reuters. Uh, this is uh, dated June 7th. U.S. Senators unveil bill to regulate cryptocurrency. A bipartisan pair of U.S. Senators unveiled a bill on Tuesday that would establish new rules for cryptocurrency and hand the bulk of their oversight to the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. The bill, introduced by Republican Senator Cynthia Lummis, one of Congress's most vocal cryptocurrency advocates, and Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, marks one of the most ambitious efforts yet by lawmakers to place clear guardrails around rapidly growing and controversial cryptocurrency markets. The measure would stipulate that the CFTC, not the Securities and Exchange Commission, play the primary role in regulating crypto products, most of which, the senator said, operate more like commodities than securities. The smaller CFTC is generally seen as a friendlier regulator for cryptocurrency, as the SEC has typically found that crypto products must adhere to a host of securities requirements. The bill is not expected to become law in the current session of Congress with the midterm elections just months away, but its framework could serve as a starting point for future debates about how best to oversee those markets. We expect this bill will be the starting point for debate next year, regardless of which party controls the House or the Senate wrote Jarrett Seiberg, an analyst with Cowan Washington Research Group. What does matter is that there is a bipartisan effort to bring crypto into the existing regulatory regime, even if the details are likely to change. The senator said the bill is aimed at providing certainty and clarity to crypto markets alongside consumer protections. 
Among other items, the bill would establish new rules for stablecoins, which are tokens intended to have their value pegged to a traditional asset like the U.S. dollar. Those products have been under significant pressure lately after a crash in the value of a high-profile stablecoin, TerraUSD. The new bill would require stablecoin issuers to maintain high-quality liquid assets equal to the value of all outstanding stablecoins and public disclosures of those holdings. Uh, so my overall take on this is good. It's positive. I think uh, regulation as commodities makes a lot of sense. Um, I know that's kind of how people have looked at Bitcoin. Um, uh, I'm not sure about other cryptocurrencies, uh, but certainly, you know, anything that's uh, proof of work like Bitcoin and that didn't have an initial coin offering where people bought in, um, you know, that would certainly make a lot of sense. And I also think that it's probably a good time to start regulating the stablecoin market. Um, there's definitely um, concerns about whether or not those coins are actually backed by anything. And, uh, you know, they really should be like money market funds that are really, um, you know, just uh, on the blockchain. And so, um, you know, I think it would be a positive development to have some regulation in that area. Uh, and and hopefully uh, avoid a uh, repeat of what happened with uh, uh, Luna and Terra. Okay, the next article here is uh, not really a Bitcoin article, but it's uh, it's sort of related. American economists are baffled by an unusual situation as Russian's ruble is the world's best performing fiat currency. Uh, this was on Bitcoin.com. Russia's ruble outshines the euro and dollar. Transcontinental countries' fiat currency shows resiliency. On February 28, 2022, Bitcoin.com news reported on the Russian ruble sinking to record lows. And citizens started to withdraw lots of cash, causing what many reports called a bank run. At the time, Russia was hit with strict financial sanctions from countries opposed to the war in Ukraine. Furthermore, the United States, the European Commission, and Western allies imposed restrictions on the Bank of Russia's international reserves. However, during the second week of April 2022, Bitcoin.com News reported on the country's central bank slashing rates and pegging the ruble to gold. At the time, Russian, Russia's central bank pegged the price of rubles, uh, rubles to 5,000 rubles for a gram of gold. Russia also made it so unfriendly, countries are forced to pay for gas with the ruble. Numerous international buyers are complying with the rule and paying for petrol products in rubles. The country's central bank also slashed Russian benchmark uh, bank rate as well. That week in April, the Russian ruble rebounded to pre-war levels, and the fiat currency has shown resilience ever since then. In recent times, various headlines from Western-based media outlets have shown that the Russian ruble is the world's best-performing fiat currency today. Speaking with CBS, Jeffrey Frankel, a professor of capital formation and growth at the Harvard Kennedy School, remarked that it's an unusual situation in regard to the ruble rise. The ruble has recorded record highs against the Eurozone's Euro and the US dollar. In the same report, Tatiana Orlava, the lead 
emerging markets economist at Oxford Economics said that the increase in commodity prices has been attributed to the ruble's resiliency. Commodity prices are currently sky high. And even though there's a drop in the volume of Russian exports due to embargoes and sanctioning, the increase in commodity prices more than compensates for these drops, Orlova explained. Orlova further detailed to CBS that there's been a huge discrepancy between exports and imports in Russia. The Oxford uh, economist added, we have this coincidence that as imports have collapsed, exports are soaring. Orlova also discussed the capital controls Russia's central bank implemented and how foreign holders of stocks and bonds cannot reap dividends internationally. That used to be quite a significant source of outflows for currency from Russia. Now that channel is closed, the Oxford Economist concluded. Meanwhile, in the United States, the Biden administration is struggling with hot inflation and the president has a hard time discussing the issue, according to a report from the New York Times contributors Zolan Kano-Youngs and Gina Smielek. Biden is claiming that America is in a stronger economic position today than just about any other country in the world. Biden continues to blame the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, for U.S. gas hikes and calls it the Putin price hike. So uh, what's interesting about this now is that um, uh, there is a difference between, you know, pegging your currency to gold versus actually making it exchangeable for gold. Obviously, making it exchangeable for gold is much uh, a much stronger move. But I think, um, you know, for all those reasons, um, including, you know, Russia having a lot of commodities, uh, which essentially, not explicitly, but sort of implicitly back their currency, um, and of course, you know, uh, if people are unfriendly, which is pretty much all of Europe, uh, and they want to buy, um, commodities from Russia, they have to buy, they have to sell their currency and buy rubles in order to, um, use the rubles to, to purchase. So, um, you know, will it be sustainable? Don't know, but it's kind of interesting that you have a, what is essentially a, a, a hard asset pegged currency now in the ruble, and uh, it is uh, performing as you would expect it to. And then the last article here is from Coindesk, um, and this was uh, this just came out. This was just updated today, uh, and this is. Um, Edward Snowden says, use crypto, don't invest in it. Speaking remotely at Consensus 2022, the whistleblower also described most of those who signed a recent anti-crypto letter to Washington as prolific public trolls. Edward Snowden, the famous whistleblower and president of the Freedom of the Press Foundation, sees more value in cryptocurrencies and their use than as an investment. I use Bitcoin to use it. In 2013, Bitcoin is what I used to pay for the servers pseudonymously, Snowden said Saturday in a virtual appearance at Coindesk Consensus 2022 conference in Austin, Texas. He gained fame in 2013 when he leaked classified information on the National Security Agency's surveillance of U.S. citizens. Generally, I don't encourage people to put their money in cryptocurrencies as a technology, 
and this is what distances me from a lot of people in the community, he added. Snowden also defended the cryptocurrency crypto industry in the face of criticism earlier this month by a group of tech experts who knocked cryptocurrency and blockchain technology in a letter to U.S. lawmakers to counter the industry's lobbying efforts. Snowden said he believes the signatories were deliberately misunderstanding the crypto industry, recycling a number of the same legacy arguments that have been made repeatedly in the past. The letter is an argument for the status quo, Snowden said. There are so many ways to address all of their concerns. All the people who have signed this letter could understand this industry. They certainly should. Snowden did express admiration for cryptographer Bruce Schneer, who was one of the lead signatories of the letter for his work on cryptography, but Snowden described many of the people who signed the letter as prolific public trolls. Addressing the current state of privacy on the internet, Snowden said he believes great progress has been made on encrypting the content of communications, but is still concerned about metadata, the records that show communications took place. Think of it like a van with dark windows driving down the highway, Snowden said. You can't see who the passengers are, but you can still see where the van left from, where it ended up, how long it took, that type of thing, he said. We need to make sure no one can observe that level, Snowden argued. We need to make more transactions similar so everyone is driving the same kind of vans and gets lost in the crowd. Snowden was charged by the U.S. with espionage and given asylum in Russia following his leak in 2013. He was granted permanent residency rights there in 2020. Asked about his thoughts on the war in Ukraine, Snowden was forthright in saying he wished it hadn't started and hopes that it will end as soon as possible. I haven't talked about the Ukraine crisis in depth because uh, I know my comments are not going to be covered appropriately. They're not going to cover the context, he said. He added that he is writing about the war and will publish his work eventually. So this is quite interesting because this kind of goes back to some things I talked about last week um, as to why it's good to have Bitcoin, um, uh, regardless of you know the price action. Um, it's good to have it as a as a payment mechanism that operates outside of the uh, banking system. Uh, and again, because you know. Bank accounts can be seized uh, by the government if they don't like something that you did or whatever. Um, it's it's always nice to have a little bit of money that's outside of the system. And again, not that people do things illegal, but you know, uh, if you make a donation to the truckers, for example, in Canada and got your bank accounts frozen, um, you know, you really wouldn't want that to happen and just get caught up in something that isn't even really. Uh, uh, breaking the law, or if it was, you should at least be entitled to due process. You should be able to be charged, have a trial, and then if you're convicted, then sure, they should, you know, you'd have to pay the penalty, but but to just uh, have the government move in and just assume that you did something bad, um, that's, that's, that's not a good thing. And so, um, uh, you know, being able to have that money outside the system um, just in case, I mean, hopefully you never need it, but, uh, just in case, um, makes a lot of sense. Okay. So moving on, um, to this week's topic, inflation is theft. Um, so really the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Price Index report, 
um, was released last week uh, for the month of May. And then, you know, in that report, of course, all the monthly numbers get annualized. And again, this month, there were some eye-popping line items in there, including uh, food at home, which was up 11.9%. Energy was up 34.6%. Gas was 48.7% of that number. Used cars and trucks was up 16.1%. New vehicles were up uh, 12.6%. And oddly enough, shelter uh, was only up 5.5%, which seems really low given, you know, we're still seeing rent and home price appreciation in the 15 to 20% range, at least where I live here in uh, Southern California. The overall consumer price index increase was 8.6%. Um, that was higher than last month and higher than uh, what was expected. Of course, in response to that, the stock market sold off uh, precipitously. Um, and I was looking through uh, my uh, stock tracker, and the only green I saw was gold and silver and gold miners and silver miners. Everything else was uh, deep in the red. So, um, so there's that. Um, now, if you're you know, if you've heard me talk about this before, you know I don't really have a lot of faith in the official statistics um, since the method that they use to calculate that has changed significantly over the years. And I often refer to an alternative measure that's published by Shadow Stats. Um, and if you, and, and I'll uh, apologize in advance, I, I have charts. Um, so if I'll put a link to my Substack post in the, in the show notes. And you can take a look at the charts and some of the other graphics in there. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, inflation, you know, according to shadow stats, is, is probably most likely approaching 17%. Um, and again, based on the 1980 version of how they would calculate CPI. That, to me, seems a lot more reasonable. Uh, and it would be more reasonable to people who are actually buying gas or shopping for groceries. Meanwhile, politicians are blaming everyone for the inflation that we're seeing. I've heard uh, now Trump, Putin, greedy corporations, the list goes on and on. When the real reason is simply that there's just too much, too much money flooding the system. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics stopped tracking the broadest measure of money supply, uh, which is M3, many years ago. But um, Shadow Stats also has a continuation estimate of that. Um, and uh, if you look at uh, you know, all, all three uh, versions of the money supply, M1, M2, and M3 are all showing uh, significant year-over-year um, -year growth in the last couple of years. The M1 is actually parabolic. Um, so, you know, what that means is there's a lot more dollars in the system. Now, some of that, a good chunk of it was trapped in the banking system. Um, and that doesn't really become inflationary until, you know, or doesn't turn into cash in people's pockets until banks turn around and lend that money out. But a good amount of money made its way to the real economy, um, in the form of stimulus payments. And of course, that money then chases 
goods and uh, at least during the lockdowns, mostly goods. And now that lockdowns are over and COVID is fading, services, travel, restaurants and all that. And of course that then drives inflation. Um, and another troubling statistic uh, is just the growth in consumer debt, um, which um, actually dropped after the, uh, during, during the um, COVID uh, recession um, and then sort of bottomed out. And now it's kind of headed back up to the prior peak that it was at um, uh, just prior to uh, the COVID um, uh, recession. And so, you know, again, uh, people are using borrowed money. They're, they're buying goods and services. Um, they may or may not be able to afford those goods and services with cash, but, but it's putting more uh, spending out in the economy, which then further drives inflation. It's pretty clear to me, though, that we can't have growth in our economy without more and more debt. That's how the system is built. That's how it works. Um, and so with respect to inflation, Milton Friedman once said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output. Then he goes on to say, a steady rate of monetary growth at a moderate level can provide a framework under which a country can have little inflation and much growth. It will not produce perfect stability. It will not produce heaven on earth, but it can make an important contribution to a stable economic society. Now, while I agree with the first part, the second part is a problem for me and that, you know, the entire monetary system is designed around having some level of inflation. The problem with even a small amount of inflation, um, for example, the Fed's 2% target, if, if that were actually true, is that if you simply work hard and save your money and put it in the bank and earn interest, it's a certainty that you'll lose purchasing power. And in times of high levels of inflation, your savings will erode even faster. So if the real inflation rate is double the amount that's being reported currently, you're in serious trouble. Um, then looking at the dollar and, uh, and it's, pretty much lost purchasing power more or less consistently since 1985 um, and through through today and again using um, shadow uh, uh, shadow stats data um, it's lost about 40 percent of its value so having any level of inflation at all is really theft from people who work hard and save their money so facing these eroding savings, the average person has little choice but to speculate in stocks, cryptocurrencies, real estate, and other investments, and in some cases using debt or other forms of leverage in order to beat uh, inflation. And for, for those with 401ks, which, which other than their primary residence is probably the majority of their assets that they're counting on for retirement, you're basically forced to invest in the stock market if you want to beat inflation. Um, or you can have bonds or cash, but those are guaranteed to lose money right now. You're basically at the mercy of Wall Street. And unless you're a professional trader or you spend a lot of time studying the markets, you're totally outmatched. So as, as Ludwig von Mises says, and he's, this is a famous Austrian economist, 
He said, how long can a central bank continue in inflation? Probably as long as people are convinced that the government, sooner or later, but certainly not too late, will stop printing money and thereby stop decreasing the value of each unit of money. When people no longer believe this, when they realize that the government will go on and on without any intention of stopping, then they begin to understand that prices tomorrow will be higher than they are today. Then they begin buying at any price, causing prices to go up to such heights that the monetary system breaks down. He also said, the longer the boom of inflationary bank credit continues, the greater the scope of malinvestments in capital goods and the greater the need for liquidation of these unsound investments. When the credit expansion stops, reverses, or even significantly slows down, the malinvestments are revealed. We have certainly seen many malinvestments revealed recently, including meme stocks, crypto frauds, SPACs, etc., all initially pumped up due to the Fed's easy money policies. Today, with the Fed in full reverse, talking tough, raising rates, and stopping bond purchases or quantitative easing, and now discussing selling bonds in its portfolio or quantitative tightening, this has resulted in rapidly declining bond and stock markets. Indeed, we're seeing the end of a very long inflationary credit cycle. It's kind of interesting in a way, if you think about it, that the entire markets are dependent upon what the Fed does. I mean, that to me doesn't really seem like a free market. But the real question is, what comes next? Will central banks, including the Fed, continue to raise interest rates and tighten credit to tame inflation and ultimately lead to a recession or a depression? Will the Fed keep going until something breaks, including the entire economy? That's what a lot of market observers think will happen. Clearly, inflation has the politicians' attention, and this stands in the way of their re-election prospects. As I tweeted recently, this is the game plan. Blame, one, blame inflation on everyone else. Two, look busy trying to fix inflation, even though you can't. Three, work on giveaways that win votes like student loan forgiveness, but make inflation worse. Refer to Gavin Newsom for more great giveaway ideas to squander tax surplus. Therefore, to me anyway, it seems like the stock and bond markets will continue to get pummeled until there's reason for the Fed to reverse course and signal a shift back to easy money. Due to the incredible amount of debt outstanding, which I've talked about before, you know, um, $30 trillion of uh, government debt, $170 trillion of uh, off-balance sheet entitlement obligations, uh, and, the, and, and that's just the federal government obligations of the U.S. Uh, the number is much, much higher across the, uh, you know, other, you know, with companies and municipalities and let alone global. But uh, again, large amount of debt outstanding, not only in the U.S., but around the world, interest rates can't be raised above the inflation rate like they could during the 70s without causing uh, total economic destruction. I think. So the path of least resistance is to look busy fighting inflation for a while. And then when there's a little good news on the inflation front, flip back to money printing, the path of least resistance for central planners and politicians. And has always been that way through history. The problem, of course, is that it will cause more inflation. 
and will likely reinflate the everything asset bubble. And it seems like the pivot's inevitable, but guessing the timing, well, that's just not easy. So then, what is the best way to preserve your wealth in these unprecedented times? In my view, it's holding hard assets, including gold, silver, and most importantly, Bitcoin and self-custody. Self-custody is important because we have recent experience with government seizing bank accounts of private citizens, donors to the Canadian trucker protests, for example, that I mentioned earlier. Also, sovereign funds are not safe either, um, as Russia learned when the West seized their foreign reserves of about $300 billion as part of the Ukraine conflict sanctions. Uh, that was also mentioned in the earlier um, article. Now, regardless of what you think about the Canadian trucker movement or the Russia-Ukraine situation, these are telling government actions. Indeed, there have been times in history when governments have made gold ownership illegal, even in the U.S. And, uh, and if, you, if, you're, if you're shocked, just look up Executive Order 6102. Now, real estate, either your primary residence or an investment property is also good in inflationary times. If you have a modest loan balance relative to the value of your property, low long-term fixed interest rate, and an affordable payment. But unlike the banks and other too big to fail institutions, if you can't make your mortgage payment, there's no way out for you but foreclosure. So it pays to be prudent with your monthly cash flow and not get overextended. You know, I, I wrote a couple of weeks ago that the real estate market um, also seems to be in a bubble and it's probably not a great time to buy investment property. It may make sense to buy a primary residence if you have to for some life event. Maybe you have a growing family, new job. <clears throat> if you do have to buy in this market, I'd stay away from adjustable loans since those can be a problem in an inflationary environment when rates reset. Um, in a weird way, Long-term fixed-rate debt, like a mortgage, becomes an asset in inflationary times since your mortgage was originated when dollars were worth more and is paid back in dollars that are progressively worth less. Looking at bonds, they're a train wreck as an investment now, promising to pay you back less than the rate of inflation in all cases, I think. It's better to be a borrower of fixed rates and not a lender during inflationary times. Now, the standard investment play in a recession, though, would be to buy bonds. Um, but that just no longer seems to be a sure thing with, you know, such low uh, interest rates and such historically high inflation. Now, that worked during the great financial crisis in 2008, but I'm not sure that would still work today. Stocks seem to certain to suffer for some time until the Fed rate pivot, especially tech stocks. Um, I do like commodity producers like oil companies, gold miners, and the like for their strong dividends, cash flows, and upside potential in an inflationary environment. Um, but I think overall, in, in the world of today, real assets beat paper assets. I'll uh, leave you with this final quote from Ludwig von Mises. It is impossible to grasp the meaning of the idea of sound money if one does not realize that it was devised as an instrument for the protection of civil liberties against despotic inroads on the part of governments. Well, thanks for listening to the podcast. 
If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow my Substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Nick Reichert. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.